Thank you so much for being here. So Carol wanted to do something nice for her neighbor, Mrs. Smith. So she baked her a fresh hot apple pie and she walked next door and knocked on it and Mrs. Smith opened and said, wow, for me, thank you so much. This is, this is amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, the next week, Carol decided to do it again. So she walked over next door to Mrs. Smith's house. She knocked on the door. Mrs. Smith opened up and she presented her with another hot apple pie. And Mrs. Smith said, well, thank you so much. The next week, Carol decided to keep the streak going. So she took a hot apple pie next door to Mrs. Smith. She knocked on the door. Mrs. Smith opened. Carol presented her the apple pie. Mrs. Smith said, thanks. Shut the door and went on her way. The next week, Carol brought her another apple pie. She knocked on the door. Mrs. Smith opened, and she presented her the apple pie. Mrs. Smith said, thank you. Uh, you might want to try not cooking it so long. The edges are getting a little hard. And by the way, I like cherry better, so if you could get me cherry pie next week, that'd be great. Thanks. So the next week rolls around. Carol brings a hot cherry pie to Mrs. Smith's door. She opens the door and says, you're two days late. The next week, Carol didn't have enough time to bake a, a pie. She's walking down the street, and Mrs. Smith sees her and opens up her window and says, hey, where's my pie? She'd gotten used to it, and she took it for granted. I'm afraid sometimes we fall into the same trap. I know I'm not talking to anybody here that does this, but maybe it's a good reminder every now and then to avoid the attitude of entitlement and to have an attitude of gratitude that we just remind ourselves where our blessings are coming from and why we have them in the first place. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. I know it's not Christmas yet, but I couldn't think of a better title. Luke chapter 17. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. But Jesus responded and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. We don't know a lot about leprosy in our culture. Thanks to modern medicine. It's also known as Hansen's disease. That's the name given to it from the Norwegian scientist who discovered leprosy. There are parts of our world where leprosy is still a thing, where it's still being dealt with, where it can still be debilitating. And leprosy is really a broad term that covers a lot of different skin disorders. However, leprosy that we read about in the Bible would start as a discoloration in the skin or a lesion, typically on the extremities, the fingers, the toes, the nose. And when advanced, it made uh, the extremities numb. Uh, a person could be lying in bed asleep and a rat, could chew their, uh, a rat could chew their finger off and they'd never know it because they just go numb. Now, today, even, those who deal with leprosy, if it's caught early enough, usually has a pretty simple treatment. But even back in Jesus' time, 
This was a debilitating disease that the people didn't know much about, little about, if anything. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 give instructions for how the people were to deal with leprosy. Which, by the way, side note, this is really good evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Because the people are being told what to do when someone turns up positive with leprosy where they need to go quarantine, all the list of instructions that are given there about how to deal with this debilitating disease, that is absolute evidence of inspiration. You know why? Because the people didn't know. They didn't know what to do with leprosy. Who did? God did. God had to tell the people what they must do. Not Moses, but the Holy Spirit. God told them what they must do. So that's evidence of inspiration right there. But when you'd have a a, a discoloration, When the hair within the lesion or the discoloration would turn white, then it was determined to be full-blown leprosy. You were to quarantine for seven days. The infection, if it disappeared, the person would be readmitted back into society. If not, then the person was diagnosed with the disease and ostracized from the general population for an extended period of time. Notice what is written in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. It says, As for the person who has the leprous infection... His clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and call out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. He shall live outside the camp. So, as Jesus is passing between Samaria and Galilee, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He meets a group of lepers in a very remote area. And this is not unusual. This would be the exact type of place that you would send people who are suffering from leprosy. And Jesus is walking through, and they cry out, have mercy on us. Makes you wonder, how did they know who this guy was? Maybe rumors were swirling about Jesus, and they got wind of them. Maybe they just saw any person who was clean and thought, maybe he can help. But Jesus does help. He tells them to go and show themselves to the priest, which is interesting, right? Why? that method. I mean, obviously, he could have healed them with a word. I think he was trying to teach them obedience. I think he was wanting to see if their faith was well-placed, if they were going to obey. They do, and while on their way, they're healed. Now, let me ask you, if you were suffering from a debilitating disease that was affecting you physically, mentally, socially, that was going to be the death of you, eventually, probably, how would you feel if all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, it was taken away from you? What would be your instant reaction? I would think it would be gratitude, wouldn't it? I would think your number one priority in that moment would be to go back and thank the one who cured you. You ever thought about how these, these lepers probably had a spouse and a family? You ever thought of that? So they're not only dealing with this debilitating disease, they're they're suffering with others like themselves, away from their family, away from civilization, maybe away from their job, whatever it is. They're not only dealing physically with this, they're dealing with it in every aspect of life. So you would think when you have immediate relief, you would instantly turn back and thank the one who healed you. Thankfulness is a natural response to restoration, but only one, a Samaritan, which is very significant, only one, a Samaritan, goes back and recognizes his obligation to Jesus. 
Why didn't the others feel compelled to turn around? We could speculate on that. We could give several possible reasons, but you've heard me say this enough. There's always more than just what is on the surface, right? you got to dig a little deeper. And who was the audience that Jesus spoke to so often? Not his apostles. He spoke to them often as well. He talked to those who were potential disciples. But he also had a lot to say to who? The religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, like we talked about this morning, those who thought that they were the winners. And if you look at this, at this account of the ten lepers, and only one turns around, the one that does turn around and give thanks is a Samaritan. Remember, they were hated half-breeds. You start to make the connection underneath the surface of what's going on here. Jesus is teaching through this incident how the attitude of entitlement is going to be a detriment. You know, the Israelites, the Jews, believed that they were God's chosen people because they were. But they also believed that that entitled them to certain rights and privileges. And the Jewish leaders really took that for granted. We see that over and over again in Scripture. We see how that they uh, had this attitude, not of gratitude, but one that they expected these blessings from God. They felt like anybody that was not in their circle, their immediate circle, uh, was just kindling for the fires of hell. That's what they believed Gentiles were. They believed that God despised them, so therefore they despised them. They looked down their nose at them. And certainly a Samaritan would have been on that list of those that they despised. But Jesus teaches a lesson, as he's done before, through a, a lowly half-breed, that an attitude of gratitude is where we need to be coming from. It's like the, uh, it's like the little six-year-old boy who told all of his buddies in class and his teacher even that the moon followed him around. How special he is that the moon follows him around. And his teacher, feeling like he needed a dose of humility, said, well, actually, the moon follows us all around. He couldn't be convinced. He had been taught at home that he was the center of the universe, that everything revolved around him. Uh, before the days of political correctness, we might call him a spoiled brat, but we know who we're talking about, right? And, and a lot of times, kids, I think most times, have this sense of entitlement and, and this self-centeredness, but you beat it out of them, right? Or, or they grow up and they mature. You know, we don't allow them to be spoiled brats forever. At least we shouldn't. You know, when I was coaching, we had a, had a young man who was a freshman on the baseball team, and he didn't get to play. It was rare that a freshman would get to play. He might get to play sparingly. He ended up being a pretty good player, but as, as a freshman, he didn't get to play much. And his parents took issue with this. And they asked to talk to me, and they wanted to know why, is, why their son wasn't getting to play. And, you know, early on, I used to try to massage the situation and say things like, you know, hey, just hang in there. It's going to be fine. It'll be okay. After a few years of that, I realized, you know, the best thing to do is probably just be honest, you know. And so when a parent like that would come to me and say, you know, why didn't you get him to play? I'd, you know, kindly say, well, who should he play over? I mean, is he better than this kid? Is he better than this kid, you know? I mean, usually it was obvious, not always. Or sometimes I would just say when they would ask, you think he's going to get to play? No, I really don't. He's a good kid, and I want him out here, and I think he's going to get better, and he will eventually earn some playing time because he's a good kid, he works hard, all those kind of things. But right now, no, he's probably not going to. Just being honest. Well, this, this young man, his parents said, well, I just don't understand why he doesn't get to play. He was an all-star. And I'm thinking, how in the world was he an all-star? But I didn't say that, you know. 
but in their minds, there was a sense of entitlement there. You know, in summer ball, he was an all-star. Why wasn't he getting to play now? Why aren't you giving him an opportunity, which I gave him plenty of opportunities, right? I mean, he just wasn't good enough in the moment. But we all kind of can easily fall into the trap of entitlement, believing that we deserve certain things. The language of entitlement says, don't you know who I am? I'm an all-star. The moon follows me around. Don't you know who I am? Now, like we said last week, the Bible originally wasn't broken into chapters and verses. So typically when you read it, you can read it in one long context. And what you read just before this account of the ten lepers in chapter 17 is the story of the rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16. And if you remember that story, you had this rich man who every day a beggar by the name of Lazarus was laid at his gate and he stepped over the beggar to get on his way, ignoring this man who would be satisfied with just the crumbs from his table. And yet he did nothing to reach out to him and to help him. Well, both of them die. They end up in the afterlife. One is in paradise, Lazarus, right? And the rich man is in Tartarus or the place of torment. I want you to notice what is written in verse 24 of Luke chapter 16. Crying out in agony, the rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Did you catch it? The sense of entitlement even in the afterlife? I mean, the rich man had been served all his life on earth. He expected to be served in eternity as well. Send Lazarus. Interesting, right? It's not just the rich. The poor can fall prey to the attitude of entitlement. They too can be consumed with this attitude of entitlement because they're disenfranchised, disadvantaged, have nothing. The disease of entitlement is no respecter of persons. It's an equal opportunity infector. The culture of entitlement says, I deserve because you owe. But Christ has an attitude, and we should all take on the same attitude that says, I surrender because I owe. Look now at verses 7 through 10 of Luke chapter 17. Prior to the ten lepers, it says, Now which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him after he comes in from the field, Come immediately and recline at the table to eat? On the contrary, will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So, just as a way of reminder, here are a few simple truths to help us garner an attitude of gratitude and to avoid a sense of entitlement. The first one is this, God is the master. We are the slaves. And folks, if you get that order wrong, you won't see heaven. It's that important. God is the master. We are the slaves. Notice again Jesus' word. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink. Throughout Scripture, we find an image of the follower of Jesus that stands in stark contrast to what the world promotes. 
The world promotes consumerism. But Jesus promotes discipleship, something very different, right? We see this image of a slave here. This is a title that was given to followers of Jesus many times. We know that James and Paul and other New Testament writers employed the term uh, bondservant or bondslave. In the Greek, it's the word doulos, and it means just that. It means a bondservant, a bondsman. When one such as Paul uses this word in, 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 in referring to himself as a bondslave of Christ, he means that he had formerly been a slave to Satan, but now there's been a transfer of ownership. There's been a transfer of allegiance. He was bought with a price, and now he is bound to his new master. Doulos is the most common word that is used for servant in the New Testament. Originally, it referred to the lowest person on the totem pole of servitude. And it came to be known as one who gives himself up to the will of another. And so needless to say, servant or bondservant is what we should be striving for because it demands selflessness. And as you've heard me say over and over again, this, this isn't all about you. There's certainly personal benefit, but it's not all about us. It's not all about me personally. You have been bought. You have been redeemed. You have a master, and that master is Jesus Christ, and your life is spent in dedication to him. God is not a consumer item that we can buy in exchange for half-hearted allegiance from a fickle customer base. You've heard the statement, the customer is always right, not when it comes to this. You're always wrong. That's why you need a Savior. Secondly, God is no one's debtor. God doesn't owe us anything. Again, Jesus said, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? The reason the master doesn't thank the servant is because the master is not the one under obligation. Jesus' point is that the slave's obligation to the master is what makes the relationship. It's not the other way around. God doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe you anything. And though he has promised to bless us for our service and obedience to him, he is not obligated to anything. He does it because he loves us, not because he has to. After we have done everything required, everything, we are still slaves at the end of the day. We, lead, we have done only what we are supposed to do when we have done everything we're supposed to do. God blesses us with many things, not the least of which is, is rescue and salvation through his son. However, he blesses us because he wants to. You think about this. We can't handle what we, des what we think we deserve, right? I mean, if God adopted a system of merit we'd all be in trouble because what we deserve is hell. But thanks be to God that we don't have to suffer the guilt of our sins. That doesn't cancel out the good that we've done. If we got what we deserved, we wouldn't see heaven, but thanks be to God. Jesus gives us what we don't deserve. That's what mercy is. It's shielding us from what we deserve. Because of grace, because of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, we don't get what we deserve. And finally, keep in mind that every blessing is a gift from God. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. Now this isn't like when I was in Cub Scouts and they give you that sash and you get the, you know, the little badges you know, for doing certain works and things like that. Don't work that way. Even after we've done everything that we are commanded to do, we're still unworthy slaves. 
And we still thank God for overlooking our sin because we've been washed in the blood of Christ. We have a a precious gift that we have received from the Master. Without God's blessings, we would be nothing. The only proper response to a gift, especially one that is so expensive, is an attitude of gratitude. A gratitude that does not focus on my rights and my privileges because I'm a slave. I have no rights. I have no privileges outside of Christ. In Jesus' parable, he is suggesting that for the Master to invite his slaves to come in off the field and to eat before him was ridiculous. That never happened, but that's exactly what God has done through Jesus. He's invited us to take our place at the table We can now sit in the king's presence without fear because we have a mediator. We have one that has made us clean. We have a master that doesn't treat us poorly but exalts us and lets us be in his presence to glorify him. Notice what is written in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the drumbeat of entitlement, right? Selfishness, conceit, I deserve, I want, you owe me. Paul continues, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A person who garners an attitude of entitlement doesn't regard others as more important than themselves. He doesn't look out for the interests of others. He doesn't care about the interests of others. He only cares about himself. And Paul goes on to say, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That's it. This is God putting his slaves' needs ahead of his own. This is the master letting his servants come and eat before him. God, through his son, emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. Though he was the master, he became a slave, an unworthy slave because he took on our unworthiness. It's an out-of-order concept. It's an upside-down way of thinking. Shouldn't be this way, but our master did it nonetheless. Christians should be the most grateful people on the planet. We should be exuding joy because of who we have in Christ, what we have in Christ. People should should be asking us, why are you you so joyful? We tell them, if I have nothing in this life, nothing, but I have my salvation, but I have Jesus, I have that relationship, I have everything. I was watching a documentary on 9-11, and they were talking to one of the firefighters who was instrumental in rescuing folks from the Twin Towers. And as they were talking to them, they said, you know, they asked him, what is it like to be a hero? I mean, what, what is that like to know that you, you had a hand in saving so many people? And very humbly, he said, I, I don't feel like a hero. It's what I'm trained to do. It's my job. It's what I'm supposed to do. Now think about that with us. There's no entitlement here. We don't deserve anything. We are immensely blessed. So we don't get extra points because we come to church every time the doors are open. We don't get a gold star because we serve somebody. 
You know, we don't get a, an extra dose of blessing because we came to a gospel meeting or something of that nature. Even when we've done everything we're supposed to do, we're still only doing what we're supposed to do. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. So, let's leave here tonight. And let's go out and let's express that attitude of gratitude in our lives so that others can see Christ living in us. Maybe they'll ask us, why are you so happy? Why are you so joyful? Well, let me tell you. David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight in some way, why don't you come as we stand? as we sing.